to God in a way. I mean, not, I, it sounds weird, but I mean, like, my, the way I am feeling emotionally no longer dictates God's goodness. Um, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Um, and oddly enough, I'll probably get pretty emotional, but so um, I'm going to, I'm just going to pray right now that um, everything will go well and that I will be able to communicate this well. Jesus, I just ask that you would give me peace, that you would calm my anxiety and help me to, to bring the right words, to say the right things, to communicate hope and not despair. Um, I ask that you would, that this message would fall on the ears that it needs to fall on and that we would realize just how vast your love is and how unchanging your goodness is. Uh, in your name, amen. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the concept of like the goodness of God, because that's kind of what's going to drive the rest of everything else. Because if we don't believe that God is ultimately good, then it, it alters our faith. It changes the way that we perceive God. Um, and it's not a question that is by any means new. There's a lot of points in time in the Bible where the authors are wrestling with this idea of the goodness of God and does God set us up for success or does he let failures happen to us or what what is that motivation um, I'm gonna kind of jump around in the scriptures I'm gonna talk about the book of Lamentations I'm gonna talk about some passages in 1st John and then Romans, and I'm going to talk about the book of Job. So I'm going to be all over the place. So just so you know, I, put, I tried to put all the, all the um, scripture verses or whatever in the slides. Um, so I'm going to start by posing three questions that kind of started to drive this message for me. So something that we all ask, whether we say it out loud or internally or to one another um, we all have at one point thought, you know, who is to blame when terrible things happen? We've all questioned, why do the righteous suffer? And uh, would a God who is good allow such terrible things to happen? The Book of Lamentations um, is, it's a book of poetry, uh, and this is just a random fact that I thought was interesting, so I'll just share it. But the way it's written, it's like an alphabet poem. So, like, A is for how amazing God is. B is how beautiful the sun is. You know, like, it's like it goes through like that. Um, so, it's structured in that way. And it was written at a point in time where the Israelites felt like they were cut off from God. They were basically, God was like, I've had enough. I've tried to do everything for you people. You won't listen to me. You turn to idols. You do this, you do that. And... Out of that comes this book of Lamentations, which historians kind of attribute to the prophet Jeremiah, who also wrote the book of Jeremiah. Um, in the book of Lamentations, the first, the first couple chapters are talking about, it's, it's lamenting. I mean, that's where like the Lamentations part comes from. It's sorrow, it's sad, it's, you know, everything is awful, woe is us. The beginning of chapter three, the first like 20 verses, the author uses language like, God has set his arrows on me, God has tripped me up, God you know, wants to see me fall, God has separated himself from me. It uses all the, 
these words that we can sometimes feel like God allows terrible things to happen to me. He sets up traps. Everything in my life is going wrong. But then, kind of in the middle of that chapter, the author changes tone. Um, and I don't really know why or what motivates it, but in verse 21, the author has just gotten done saying how much he thinks God is setting him up for failure. And then he says, Gaining hope, I remember and wait for this thought. How enduring is God's loyal love? The eternal has inexhaustible compassion. Here they are every morning new. Your faithfulness, God, is as broad as the day. And it kind of feels like it doesn't fit in with the rest of it. And you're like, well, this person was just saying, like, God is terrible. Like, he literally made me fail. He did all this stuff. And then in the middle of it, he's like, but actually, God's enduring love and steadfastness is what what makes me able to move on. Um, the word that's translated, so where it says God's loyal love, it's sometimes also translated as God's steadfast love. Um, it's translated a lot of different ways because we don't really have a word in English that matches the word in Hebrew. So the word in Hebrew is hesed. Um, the complex meaning behind it can be described as steadfast love, as charity, as grace, as loyalty, as compassion. Um, that's what the author is saying when he goes on saying, God is so terrible, he trips me up, he makes all these horrible things happen. And then he says, but actually God's steadfast, unchanging charity, his grace, his love, his compassion, it's new every morning. The word has said also gets translated later to a word in Greek. Um, and this is because when the Roman Empire dec decreed that Christianity was going to be the religion of the Roman Empire, a lot of these words had to be kind of translated and adapted. And the word that said becomes is the word agape. And agape is a form of love that the Greeks understood to be this. It's a universal, unconditional love that transcends and serves regardless of circumstances. So it's not like brotherly love where we're just like, you know, everything's cool between us. It's not uh, like sexual love where I'm in love. It's not physical. It's a, uh, the idea that it's almost like a commitment, a, a love that serves regardless of emotions, regardless of happenstance. Um, and that's what said and Agape are talking about. The other time, I mean, agape is used hundreds of times in the Bible, but the other time that it's really interesting um, is going to be later on in 1 John. Um, the author in 1 John says, Theos agape, that is God is love. So that, that word has said, that word agape, that is how that writer is using this concept to say, if we were to sum up God's character in a word, it's this word that's like almost undefinable, this... Um, never unchanging, never, sorry, never unchanging is a double negative. This unchanging, powerful, almost dutiful love, like this concept that no matter what happens or what changes, the love is not wavered, the commitment is not changed. Um, And I thought that was really fascinating because I, you know, you hear like the God is love thing, but you don't necessarily think through like 
like what are all the implications of that phrase? Like what are all the implications of that statement? The, you know, I think that that may for some of you be enough to say like, okay, well, God's good. God represents love. It represents unchanging, you know, vast commitment. Um, but that doesn't necessarily like answer the question of why do terrible things happen to good people? And like, why does God allow that? Or why does that happen? And there is a book in the Bible that kind of spends its entirety talking about that concept. Um, it's the book of Job, and it's actually considered to be one of the oldest books in the Bible, if not the oldest book in the Bible. So this writing has kind of been going on since the beginning of time, this concept of we, we know that God is good, but like, why do terrible things happen? And that's what the author in Job tries to address. So I'm gonna kind of talk just a little bit about what the story of Job is. Um, it's not actually found at the beginning of the Bible when you're like, you know, in your, in the canon that we have, it's found kind of more towards the middle, but the author of it, they, they think it might not even come from a, like a traditional Jewish tradition. Like they think that it might have come from another culture, but that the Hebrews have adopted it. So it's kind of interesting. It's, it almost like exists before like some of our even early concepts of God. But the, the story of Job is this. God is in heaven um, having a conversation with the devil. And God says to the devil, look at my servant Job. Uh, do you see how faithful he is to me? And the devil's like, well, yeah, that's great. He seems like he's faithful, but you've put a hedge of protection around him and everything in his life is going great. If I took all that away, I bet you he would turn his back on you. And God says, sure, which is actually one of the most terrifying concepts in scripture <laughs> that, that God is like, yeah, that's fine. Like you can go ahead and destroy his life. And we're like, just supposed to be like, that's cool. Like, um, so that's what happens. The, the whole rest of the book is basically Satan destroying this man's life. So it starts off by God saying, well, you can't, you can't touch Job. Like you can take everything else away from him, but you can't touch him. So all of his family dies and all of his riches are gone. And his wife is like blaming him for it. And as it kind of progresses, <laughs> as, as it progresses, eventually God says, well, you, Satan's like, well, yeah, well, he's, he's still got his health. So that's why he's still good with you. So God says, okay, you can go ahead and take, his, take away his health too. So he gets like covered in like nasty boils. His family's dead, his riches are gone. His wife thinks he's an idiot and wants to leave him. And his friends come to him and say, well, you must have sinned. Like you had to have sinned. How could all these terrible things be happening to you unless you sinned? And that was the concept. And it's still the concept for a lot of people that when we do something wrong, bad things happen to us. When we're good, only good things will happen to us. It's like the concept of karma. Um, but in this story, like this early story, the writer is saying that's not necessarily how it works. Like terrible things are going to happen to good people. Like horrible things will happen. Does it change God's goodness? 
eventually Job breaks down and curses God. I mean, and who can blame him? I mean, and that's, that's part of the beauty of scripture is no one in scripture is like, well, we can't talk about God like he's bad. Like people struggle, like people struggle with their concept of God and we can struggle with that too. So Job breaks down and he's, he finally curses God and God shows up and says, where were you? Where were you before all of it began? Where were you when there was only darkness over the waters? And Job's like, I don't know. And the, the writer gives God this like very long monologue about basically running the cosmos, like saying, who are you to know what is just, what is unjust? Are you the one who set the planets in motions? Were you there to put light into being? Were you, like, he basically goes through saying, who are you to tell me how to do my job? Like, who are you to decide what is good and what is evil just because bad things happen to you? Just because things are inconveniences to you? And uh, eventually, you know, God rewards Job for his trials. He, you know, there is, there is payoff. He does get, uh, he has a new family. He has new wealth. You know, everything winds up resolving good. But it doesn't, it doesn't make, like, the rest of it any less terrifying or any less freaky. Um, what's interesting though is even when Job curses God it never indicates in the story that God separates himself from Job it never indicates that God's like well I'm actually done with you now since you're, since you're done with me um, and I think that that kind of echoes again later in scripture and uh, in Romans. So in, in Romans, we get this really powerful message. It says, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is probably the part where I'm going to get really <laughs> emotional. So, how does all of this kind of play into my life or my thinking or my separating God from what I'm feeling or what I'm going through? So I, um, I've never actually been like officially diagnosed or anything, but I suffer from depression and anxiety pretty strongly. And I, I kind of threw into focus in the last year because um, I found out that I have like a family history of mental illness and um, my Grandmother on one side is bipolar, and my grandfather on the other side committed suicide this summer. Um, and uh, I was suffering from depression before any of that. But, you know what? Sorry. It just really kind of threw everything in perspective for me. And I've realized over the years that I've had to, I've had to separate, you know, how terrible I'm feeling or, you know, whatever's going on with that. I have to separate it 
from God's goodness because it's not dictated by that. Thank you, Mia. <laughs> so like what, like what we feel or how we are hurting, it doesn't negate who God is. It doesn't negate God's goodness. And that's not, that's not easy. It's not, it's not something that is even teachable. It's just, I think maybe we can come to the moment, maybe we can't. And I don't, you know, I kind of wonder if it's my generation or what it is that we just don't know how to handle life and so we're all like emotional wrecks or I don't know what it is, but maybe it's just a phase of my life because I'm young. Maybe it's not. It doesn't make it any less real. It doesn't make um, the fact that, you know, and I, I have to clarify, I'm not suicidal or anything like that, but it doesn't change the fact that like, I feel futureless a lot of the time. Like I don't, I don't think about tomorrow because I don't feel like I have tomorrow. I had to remind myself all the time, you dumbass, you're like only in your 20s. Like you have a lot of life ahead of you. And uh, I've had to separate that from uh, like who God is and how good he is because they're not tied together. Like how I'm feeling does not negate what Jesus has done for me. And so that, uh, you know, is really what I was trying to, to bring to the table today. And uh, I'm going to wrap up with possibly an even sadder story, but <laughs> I, hope that, I hope that it really brings hope. Um, there is a, a hymn that is really, really powerful that addresses this concept, and uh, a lot of people don't know the history behind it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the story and they're going to start introing it and then they're going to sing the first song and we'll do discussion after it. But I, I want you guys to hear it and to hear the words and to understand the person who wrote it, what they were, go what they were going through. So here's the, here's the history. So in 1871, there was a fire in Chicago, which most people know about. Well, there was a man who lived there, his name was Horatio Spafford, and he lost his two-year-old son in that fire, and he lost most of his business. And so he decided that he was going to move his family back to Europe and start over there. And because he had to take care of some financial things at home, he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead of him. And when they were crossing the Atlantic, their ship was struck and it sunk. And only the wife survived. And she sent a telegram back to him that said only these two words, saved alone. And so this man, Horatio Spafford, shortly after, was making the journey back across the Atlantic to see his wife, who was grieving. And as he passed the spot where his family died, which I can't even imagine, he wrote this song that might be the most powerful song. And so they're going to sing it and I'm going to go cry back there and you guys can cry if you want to too. <laughs> the words are like really, really strong. And they talk about how good God is, even when things are really crappy. So I'm gonna let them, I'm gonna let them sing, and then we'll, I don't know, maybe discuss things after that. 